Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're joined by Dr. Scott Scher, who is going to enlighten us about a variety of different uh, topics, including uh, GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, which is a really great topic, especially if you struggle with sleep and a variety of other disorders. It's quite converse to serotonin. It's almost like the direct opposite. It's what you need, is not serotonin is what you don't need. Mm. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Joe, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, GABA is it's the unsung neurotransmitter. It's the one that doesn't get a lot of press. The fancy ones like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine get all of the get all of the uh, the press, get all of the news. Everybody cares about them, but they don't realize that GABA is 20% of the brain's neurotransmission. And when you combine glutamate, which is actually its opposite in the sense of glutamate being the excitatory neurotransmitter and the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the, in the brain and GABA being the main inhibitory neurotransmitter, those two are always working in conjunction and in balance. And in fact, it's this excitatory transmitter glutamate that actually turns into GABA into the brain, in the brain. Interesting. So appreciate that background. Um, so unfortunately, I neglected to mention your history and your background. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your medical training, sure. and how you got into uh, practicing natural medicine? Sure. So uh, my name is Dr. Scott Scher. Thanks for everybody listening today. My background is uh, I'm the son of a chiropractor. Uh, I grew up uh, in New York and uh, my, my father's still a chiropractor in New York for over, over 40 years. His name is Alan Scher, the Northport Wellness Center there where I grew up in. So I grew up very much out of the box. Uh, there really was no box at all. And at that point, uh, I, I decided to go to medical school after speaking to my father for you know, for multiple, you know, I remember multiple weeks as I was in college and thinking about whether I would go to chiropractic school or decide to go to medical school. I decided to go to medical school thinking I could bridge the chasm between uh, the alternative medicine, the world of, of chiropractic and the conventional world that I really had no idea what I was stepping into, to be honest. <laughs> so, and it was, uh, it was a journey and I, and I first uh, really kind of uh, I gravitated towards hyperbaric oxygen therapy and I, I learned about it in medical school. And then when I was in residency and then after I finished medical school and I went into my internal medicine residency and finished that, I created a, a practice that integrated hyperbaric oxygen therapy with numerous other modalities. And I also created an online platform where I do telemedicine, telemedicine consultations and I, and I work with people all over the world and I work with clinics all over the world using hyperbaric therapy as kind of like the fulcrum or sort of like the main focus point of what I do. I then gravitated towards a, a colleague of mine that was working in a, a foundational approach to medicine called Health Optimization Medicine and Practice, which is a uh, which is an educational platform. It's a nonprofit that's training doctors and practitioners, including myself, on how to optimize health. And from there, I've kind of delved into multiple things, including neurotransmitter balance like GABA, we talked about methylene blue in the past, you and I, Joe, and other things that kind of work on how you can optimize the body now while you're looking at optimizing it over the long term. So people need help now. We know that. And people are, are, are hurting and having issues that need to be addressed now. But over the long term, you can hope and you... The idea really is that you can optimize health over the long term, and that takes time though. And that's foundational life, lifestyle, dietary, supplementation, data focused as much as possible, but you needed things that can help them right now. And, and knowing about you know, the neurotransmitter balance in the system is really, really important as well. So, and that's where GABA kind of comes in. Hey, great. So you didn't learn your skill set. Uh, and information about natural health from medical school. There's no way they don't teach it there. So we, no. anyone in this field has to acquire it separately. So maybe you can briefly summarize your journey and to acquire the skill set. And then specifically at the end, uh, discuss how you found Ray Pete and uh, that story, because that'll be interesting. And we'll, we'll discuss that a little more. Then we we'll can dive into Gamble. 
Well, I mean, I think my journey really started off when I was a kid, right? I didn't look at anything uh, as you would typically when you're going through a conventional upbringing with going to McDonald's and going to regular mm -hmm. doctors and, and those kinds of things. So I've always been very much in line with thinking of things outside the box in that case. Mm -hmm. And then as I finished medical school and residency and started getting involved in hyperbaric therapy and creating an integrative approach, I just started learning more and more about what was out there and what was available and, and what was really necessary for optimizing health rather than, as I mentioned, just treating disease. And I already mm -hmm. knew sort of in, in concept, all of that was ongoing in the sense that the way I grew up and the way I saw people heal and the way I saw people's diets change when I was a kid and then their allergies would go away, for example, or doing an adjustment and their neurologic presentation would improve. improve. I, would, I was growing up in this office and seeing all that. So I, I, I think for me as an adult, it was more trying to, or just not even trying, just sort of the, the flow of, of understanding how to actually do this in clinical practice within the own, with my own realm of understanding and curiosity and and things like that and so you know as far as ray goes i'm not as uh, i'm not as into ray as you are joe i know many of his his work and i know and i appreciated all of it but i'm not i would certainly not call myself a, a student of his work to a significant degree as much as you are all right well definitely a student i've just started learning it but he was he was really a genius passed away last about a year ago as we we're recording this. Um, so having that perspective when you went through train, medical training must have been a challenge. I know a few people who did that. Most people convert to natural medicine after medical school, not yeah. before, because they're so opposed to the whole paradigm that has been captured since the beginning of the 20th century, essentially, uh, that they're, they're not going to commit to it. They, they know it's fraudulent and it's it's absolutely opposed to what they believe. So how how did you reconcile that? Yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, I kind of put my blinders on for a little while and just did what I needed to do to uh, get the get the training. And and look, I think that we all can agree that there's a good reason why we all need conventional medicine sometimes. <laughs> Working in a, an acute care hospital, for example, you need to do what you need to do to get people better. It's not like you'd want people to be there and presenting the way they are, but unfortunately they are, right? So I think that there's certainly a role for conventional medicine. I think especially acute care medicine is, look, there's a lot of problems with it, but it does do what it needs to do to get people out of the hospital. The problem I think is in the, is in the, the primary care world, in the outpatient medicine world where things are very, very broken overall. So if you have a bleeding ulcer and you need an endoscopy and a clipping, you need to go to the hospital and get that done. And that's something that we can do very well now. But what we can't do is prevent that ulcer from happening in the first place very well. And I think that's really where the disconnect well, conventional is. conventional medicine can. No, conventional yeah. medicine cannot do that, right? So <laughs> as a result... I mean, for me, it was uh, knowing that I always kind of had a feel of where I was going to go with my practice and with with where I was going to go overall. It was just a matter of understanding what I needed to know now. And look, and, and still in the acute care setting, I think that a lot of the, the knowledge that I've gained makes a lot of sense and still still applies in a lot of ways. But the, the, the system is outside system is just broken in the conventional world. And, and that's why we need other systems and, and we need people that are interested in in getting out of the system. And, and you're right, Joe, most people get out because of their own personal health challenges. That's been my experience talking to a lot of people in this world is that uh, doctors themselves had conventional medicine fail them in very many, in many ways, and they had to figure out their own ways out of that, uh, that bubble, uh, the conventional bubble to, to actually heal themselves. And then they become uh, involved in the alternative or the wellness, whatever, the integrative world, whatever you want to call it. And so that's, that's, not, my, that's not my journey, but certainly it's many journeys of, of those that I've met in this world. Okay. Yeah. So I think you probably told me in the past that you hadn't done a deep dive with Ray Pete, and I apologize for not recalling that. I knew you knew him for sure, and you weren't opposed to it, unlike most physicians. Well, most physicians haven't heard of it, but if they did, they would, they would be opposed to it, as I was for over 30 years. I knew of Ray's work in the 80s. He was just, just in case you didn't know, he was the really, as far as I'm aware, the first professional to widely acknowledge and teach that seed oils were dangerous 
in the eighties, he was doing that in the eighties, which is crazy. I realize that. Yeah. Yeah. He was little, and which is what really attracted me to his work because he was so far ahead of his time. Most people, most physicians who are aware that they're an issue didn't really catch on until the teens of the 21st century, you know, 30, 30, 40 years later. Hmm. So, um, anyway, the reason I mentioned that is that he, he, he wasn't just he f focusing on linoleic acid and, and seed oils, mega-6s, PUFAs. But he, his primary work was really in hormones, human hormones. And he did his PhD thesis on estrogen. And the reason I mentioned that is that what, what do you have a, any strong positions on estrogen? Do you believe in bioidentical hormone, estrogen re replacement therapy, or what's your position on that? Or do you prescribe it? I don't typically prescribe it. I do work with, with providers that do use bioidenticals at times. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're not an advocate of it necessarily. Well, I think it depends on the situation you know, in general. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cause you know, it seems for the most part, there's a very limited indication for that. If at all, I'm not convinced that there is uh, largely because estrogen is a contributor to cancer. It really is. Does the, it does the exact opposite of what you want to do. The reason I mentioned estrogen is that it's very similar to linoleic acid and serotonin is mixed in there too because it, it they the the linoleic acid and the estrogen both um impair mitochondrial function and they decrease metabolic rate it's a pressure thyroid which is not a good thing you know it's really optimizing mitochondrial function is one of the things you want to do and the reason i shifted to serotonin before we started talking about GABA is that typically that is the happy hormone, the one that's thought to be the source of most people's depression mm -hmm. and the neurotransmitter that is really targeted uh, with almost all the pharmac pharmac pharmacological approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, the most pernicious, of course, being the SSRIs or the serotonin uptake inhibitors mm -hmm. like Prozac or Zoloft. Uh, and they're very, very dangerous drugs. They should really, there is never an indication to use those in my mind. It's, it's just, it's criminal malpractice if you understand the, the biology of it uh in yeah. fact you want to do the exact opposite you want it lower serotonin and this is why you have to be careful of taking tryptophan because tryptophan is a precursor of serotonin and not that you don't need any tryptophan because it's also serotonin precursor for melatonin but you need some but you excess is just a huge problem so anyway that's just what i wanted to say on that and I, sure and, i mean I, I guess if you I make say. any comments on that yeah. we can delve in divert over into GABA. Yeah. So, I mean, I look, I think that there is some controversy on, on the serotonin side, but I do agree that there's uh, all the data that's come out over the last several years does make it pretty clear that it's not really doing anything for depression per se. Mm -hmm. And uh, there has been a, unfortunately, a very significant focus on that with the drugs that we've had ongoing for many years with black box warnings. I've had friends uh, and friends, sisters, you know, commit suicide using SSRIs. This is early in the early days. And actually, I know somebody who got that black box warning on the SSRIs themselves. So they're a big deal. And I think that what, what I've seen in clinical practice is that usually the, there, I mean, there's so many other ways to approach people that have depression, mm -hmm. anxiety, sleepless, sleeplessness. And one of the things that I've kind of found out over the last several years is that many of these people actually are, are GABA deficient. And mm -hmm. that becomes a big issue. If you, if you can actually start then approaching it from a GABA deficiency perspective, you know, then you might see a significant change. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I, I didn't realize before I kind of got into this world is that, you know, the GABA deficiency is associated with so many things. It's associated with anxiety, with fear, with depression, mm -hmm. with a short temper, with phobias, which are fears, impulsiveness, disorganization, addictions, and it's even associated with schizophrenia and OCD. And then not only just mental health symptoms, but you can have things like IBS and diarrhea, hypertension, tinnitus, chronic pain, migraines, uh, allergies, frequent urination, flushing, sweating, saw cravings, muscle tension. These are all things that could be signs of, of GABA deficiency. And, and many of the people listening here may have been prescribed an SSRI, for example, for some of these symptoms, um, but it may not have been related to a serotonin deficiency. It's actually, we know that depression is not related to a serotonin deficiency. Um, that's, that's been well studied over the last several months to years now. We know that it's likely related to many other things. And I think one of the major components is that this significant amount of neurotransmission 
the GABA. And so GABA, for those that are listening, is the breaks in the brain. It decreases firing of neurons. So what happens is when GABA binds to its receptor, it prevents that neuron from actually firing. So it's usually what we would call a postsynaptic neuron. So the, the neuron, the presynaptic neuron is firing and the postsynaptic neuron doesn't fire because GABA is around it. It, 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 calls, it actually does something called hyperpolarize in that case. And, and these GABA neurons are all over the brain. They're in every single location um, and they actually function as something called an interneuron many of the times. And an interneuron is a neuron that's between other neurons. So you can see these cool pictures of these gigantic, these gigantic serotonin and dopamine neur neurons. And then in between it is these little, these little GABA neurons, but they're regulating all of the firing between all of these neurons. So they're extremely important for learning and for processing and for memory and for skill acquisition. So it's not about how much you can intake in your brain, actually. It's how much you can actually stop that information from coming in so that your body and your, well, your brain in this case can actually process it and so you can learn and and understand and have new memories and, and skill acquisition so i think the big challenge and it's it's a big shift for people is like no this is not about serotonin this is not about even dopamine although dopamine is certainly a problem we're all uh, i think our attention spans these days are all because we're dopamine deficient to some degree because we're all always looking for that next hit of of dopamine when it comes down to it but if we're if we're focused on those, we forget that if we can actually enhance and balance the GABA system, uh, we can truly see a significant shift in the health of our patients and clients. And I've been seeing this in real time, uh, looking at the whole the whole arc of of GABA production, everything from the amino acid glutamine, which is where we start here, that gets converted into glutamate in the brain. And everybody's heard of monosodium glutamate, I'm mm -hmm. sure, from Chinese food and things. Glutamate is your excitatory neurotransmitter. And then from glutamate, you get converted into GABA. And GABA gets only made, for the most part, the majority, like 99% of it, in the brain from glutamate. And you need the cofactors, vitamin B6 and magnesium to do it. So well, it, let's stop there for a moment, yeah. if you can, because you're, yeah. um, you're a fountain of information, which is great. Yeah. Now, the... GABA is an inhibitory one, right. an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and, and uh, glutamate is excitatory. Correct. So can you walk us through, I mean, there's there's got to be throttles and modulations in that production of GABA from glutamate, because it can go either way, right? It can go to the excitatory neurotransmitter or can go to GABA. So what, what modulates that? Right. So there's only, it's a one-way conversion from glutamate to GABA. So it doesn't okay. go back and forth like that. Um, typically uh, the challenge will be that um, if you have a trouble converting from glutamate to GABA, you're gonna have excitatory like okay. symptoms overall. So- Oh, so that it just backs up. And then yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, so, so it's not converted. Okay, thanks for, like, I knew there was a, that was my confusion. It just, just straight to GABA and the problem is making sure it facilitates. And you mentioned there's cofactors. That right, yeah, there's cofactors, vitamin B6 and magnesium. And also okay. there's a lot of other things that are going to affect the enzyme called glutamate decarboxylase that mm -hmm. converts glutamate to GABA. One of the biggest ones is uh, is infection. So if you have a chronic infection or acute infection, you're not gonna be able to convert. If you have chronic stress and you have chronic cortisol and glucocorticoid elevations, that's also gonna prevent this enzyme from working as well. But the bigger the big things would be vitamin B6 and magnesium. And I think, you know, as you know, Joe, most of the U.S. population is vitamin is magnesium deficient mm -hmm. and a significant are vitamin B6 deficient too. Well, that is interesting because if your stress hormones are elevated, you're going to decrease the production of GABA. Right. And, yeah, exactly. You know, this is one of the reasons I exited low carb and fasting, intermittent fasting, because that's one of the side effects of that strategy. Is it radically raises your stress hormones. Yeah, interestingly, no, yeah, cortisol. Yeah. interestingly, though, the ketogenic diet does increase GABA production itself, and that's related to the ketone bodies themselves doing this. So there is some balance there, you know, with uh, with the glucocorticoid elevations, but certainly the acute stress of intermittent fasting, for example, um, maybe it may be depleting your GABA reserves to some degree, and then it depends on again what is. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on what, it, what is your stores of, of glutamate that you have already and, and how well are your enzymes working to convert it over. And like, and, and that's what you're, that's what I'm always thinking about, especially people that are not eating very much. They might not be getting enough protein in the day, for mm -hmm. example. And as a result of that, they're not getting enough glutamine. And so glutamine is amino acid. That's extremely important for the, the health of the gut lining. So if you have any mm -hmm. 
leaky gut, for example, or stress in, 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 the, in the gut with infection, or even leaky brain, which is actually very common if you have a leaky gut, you're probably going to be needing significantly more amounts of glutamine to, to get into the body and actually convert to glutamate because you're using all that, uh, all the glutamine for your colonic cells, which is the main fuel of your cells in the gut, in the gut themselves. So it's, and it's a real, it's, it's, a, you have to be looking at the whole picture when you're thinking about this. And the other thing to, is that, you know, if you're, if you're taking GABA as a supplement, GABA supplements don't typically work because the molecule itself, GABA is too big to get across the blood brain barrier. However, if you have a leaky brain, they may work. So if you're taking GABA and it's working, it may be because you have a leaky brain, which, which sounds scary, but that just means that you have a leaky gut as well. So it's, it's something to be aware of that you know, if you're trying to enhance the GABA system, you're going to be thinking about all the aspects of the biology, leaky gut, leaky brain, glutamine production, glutamate conversion, cofactors. And then if you're looking to supplement with enhancing the GABA system, you have to be thinking about other things rather than just GABA itself to enhance the system. And there's many other ways to do that. There's herbals, there's fungals, there's even uh, different ways of attaching GABA to other things to help it get through the blood-brain barrier too. Well, you know, there's some controversy on that. I mean, what you quoted was readily or widely believed in the conventional medicine community that GABA isn't a, it doesn't get past the blood-brain barrier. But, uh, you know, there's a shift. There's The brave people community does not believe that. And I was seeing if I can find the articles on that. But I know Georgie wrote an article on that recently that they're, they're promote GABA is a alcohol is a GABA agonist, which is one of the reasons many people enjoy it. And I'm sure you knew that, right? Well, of course, alcohol is a, is, has a high affinity for the GABA receptor. This is yeah. where benzodiazepines also uh, will bind. This is where barbiturates and quaaludes, and th those are called orthosteric, so excuse me, allosteric binding sites of the mm -hmm. GABA receptor. So GABA binds to the receptor, and it's got all these other binding sites on the receptor where other things can bind. And that's where, so alcohol and benzos and barbiturates bind very tightly to the GABA receptor. And when they do that, it enhances GABA production and GABA function. So you have more of the, the inhibition. So yes, this is where you have the alcohol of, uh, that's how alcohol works. But unfortunately, things like GABA, excuse me, like alcohol, benzos and barbiturates are highly addictive because they bind so tightly to the GABA receptor at their sites. And then they cause a, a conformational shifts in the, in the receptor themselves. And then if you go cold turkey off of those things, it could potentially cause, it definitely can cause withdrawal and even death, but certainly there's tolerance and dependence and things like that. But there are other natural equivalents that are much safer. Things like kava, for example, are, have been known for thousands of years to affect the GABA receptor without you know, without causing any potential addiction and withdrawal intolerance. And it's been pretty well described there. So oh, and there's that, there's, there's Hanakiol, which is from, or Hanokiol is how other people will say it, from Magnolia Bark. This is another one that binds to uh, a receptor site outside of the GABA receptor itself, um, but actually does the same thing. It helps with um, enhancing the GABA production. Valerian root is another, people know valerian root. Valerian is also another, uh, another one that increases GABA production in the brain, but it doesn't bind to the GABA receptor itself. It binds to a separate site, these allosteric sites. Uh, there's something called nicotinyl GABA, which is vitamin B3 attached to a GABA molecule. And this is something that, because it's attached to B3, very easily gets through the blood-brain barrier, and then hydrolyzes to vitamin B3 and GABA in the brain. And as a result of that, you have increased vitamin B3 and GABA directly. So that becomes a GABA agonist, also called an orthosteric ligand at the, the GABA receptor. So you have other ways to modulate the receptor, even if you can't get GABA in directly, is, is, is my understanding. Now, I have heard that nanoliposomal varieties will potentially work because they're attached in a fat molecule itself. And then if you take very, very high doses of GABA directly, that also may have an effect as well. But I, I've, at least clinically, I've seen this in patients that they take GABA. Um, if they have a, if they have a, a pretty good gut overall, they don't have a, they don't have any effect of the GABA supplements themselves. But then I give them vitamin B3 attached to a GABA. If we give them these allosteric um, mo molecules, like the ones I've just described, then they start having significant improvement and then their anxiety and stress get better. And then, you know, they sleep better as well. And that's why Valerian has been known for many, many years as a great sleep aid uh, for these reasons and doesn't cause the same potential addictive or risk factors, uh, the risk fa the risk of uh, the dependence withdrawal and addiction that the benzos and the barbiturates and, oh, gosh, those and the alcohols of the world will do.
virtually you know, well, alcohol will help because it's gap and agonist, but it, it does it destroys your sleep architecture. Right. That's a huge thing. And then and then all these a lot of the other sleep drugs as we know will also destroy sleep architecture. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, THC does it. What people don't realize that yeah. THC as well as destroys your deep sleep. Your benzos do the same thing. Your alcohol does the same thing. And and if you're taking, so you really want to be taking things that are going to enhance your sleep stages as much as you can, and not things that are going to trash it. Um, if you're like in a real in a real bind and, and you've been on like an insomnia run for days or weeks and months, and then you just need to sleep, then then I, this is sometimes a reason to use some of those drugs. But oftentimes, if you can just modulate the GABA system. You can really see significant benefit without having to do all that. Of course, you don't just do that. You're looking at sleep routines and and stress and and trying to enhance the GABA system and everything else. But it's it's definitely something to think about. You want to try to avoid these drugs that are going to screw with your sleep architecture as much as possible. So, what type of doses when you just use GABA by itself have you gone up to and you and didn't seem your some of your patients didn't seem to respond to? You don't have to look at the doses. I don't, I don't have them offhand uh, to know exactly. It's Typically, the typical dose is like 500 milligrams. Yeah, and I've heard people telling me like around to, two, you know, two thousand. They, they, maybe, yeah. they, yeah, somewhere around there, they might start getting an effect. Like it usually, it's a, I'm, I'm trying to remember the uh, like two thousand, three thousand, but it takes a lot to get to uh, the yeah. amount to get some effect there. When, I wouldn't when you go more than three thousand milligrams. That's three grams. That's yeah. a lot. But yeah, but it's a lot. Yeah. For people. That, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And that's why I, 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 I try to, again, focus on the. The, what are called positive allosteric modulators of the GABA receptor. So these are things like Hanokiol and, and valerian and um, and and kava and, and things that that are that are mer- they're very well described and have a very good safety profile overall. Do you use a niacin molecule attached to GABA? Nicotinamide. It's right. uh, it's vitamin B three attached to it. I, I can't yeah. know the exact. I don't know the exact form of vitamin B three, but it's um. Yeah, it's really great because when it when it goes in through the brain into the brain, it hydrolyzes. And so, if you take something like nicotinal GABA, um, what's nice about that is that it doesn't make you so tired. The, the challenge with a lot of these drugs that are GABA agonists is going to make you tired. They're going to make you, and so you might not be able to focus, for example. So, but if you have something like nicotinal GABA, it can get across the blood brain barrier. It can help you relax without feeling tired if you get the dosing right. So that's the nice thing about something like that. Vitamin B3 attached to GABA is a really great way to increase GABA in the brain. And of course, you can synergize it with other types of compounds uh, to make it work better. You can potentially modulate the the endocannabinoid system, the, the system in the brain that, that helps kind of with homeostatic balance. We, we know about cannabis now in many ways, but what we maybe don't realize is that a lot of the cannabinoids will actually affect the GABA system as well, hmm. like CBD and CBG. They affect the GABA system. THC does it as well, but it can have a a paradoxical response. So this is why some people that will take THC will get a lot of anxiety actually when they take it is that it's actually doing something to the GABA receptor where you have the a paradoxical response and actually have uh, more, uh, you have less GABA to play around with. And as a result of that, you get more excitatory anxiety and things like that. So what does the CBD, CBD do with the GABA? It modulates it and it's, it's a positive allosteric modulator, which means that it's going okay. to enhance GABA. So this is why we're using CBD at very, very high doses. There's even a company that makes this with for, anti, for, anti, for seizures, for example. It's a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drug, um, but it's also used in clinical practice for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but really what I think it's doing in this case, if you have more GABA around, and I think this is important too, is that one of the main things that most of us are living now is a, is a sympathetic life, is a life that's just fight or flight all the time and are just you know pounding and pounding and not and don't have time don't have any time to relax or not relaxing and then if you have more GABA around it's going to help you get more parasympathetic it's going to help you with relaxation it's going to help you with stress reduction it's going to turn the brakes on and so if you need a detox you need to be in parasympathetic mode because that's how the body's going to be relaxed and the rest and digest and also detoxification happens during parasympathetic mode and so CBD is something that can help with that it can help because it's modulating of course, the, the endocannabinoid system, and uh, but at the same time, I think one of the major effects is it's because it's enhancing GABA, and, and as a result, if you're enhancing GABA, you're going to be more parasympathetic. It's just the nature of having more GABA around. Hmm. Interesting. Any other uh, helpful biohacks you found for uh, facilitating sleep, especially in people who are prone to anxiety? 
Yeah. So when it comes to looking at GABA, of course, you can look at the the supplements and the compounds uh, that we've discussed, but there's lots of natural ways to increase GABA production. I think one of the major w things that have been has been studied is meditation and breath work and yoga. So if you are getting yourself more parasympathetic, so it's like a it's like a chicken before the egg, but you can do both here at the same time and kind of come up with the chicken or come up with the egg. Is that if you learn how to relax, if you learn how to be more parasympathetic, uh, you're going to increase GABA production. So breath work, mindfulness, yoga. HRV training is, is sort of a corresponding thing here is if you're getting more, yourself more parasympathetic, you are going to have more GABA around and, and GABA is really important for the maintenance of sleep. If, if you're in REM sleep and you're getting chased by a monster, uh, you stay asleep uh, for, uh, for a number of different reasons, but GABA is one of the major neurotransmitters that's preventing you having these stress responses to running from the monster when you sleep. So you're, you want to have GABA reduction. You need to have it throughout the evening. And so, um, enhancing it by, by doing those things, there's actually been, uh, what I was describing before, some mindfulness, meditation, yoga, actually exercise also, um, exercise also helps balance out your balance between your glutamate, your excitatory neurotransmitter and, and, and if GABA, your inhibitory neurotransmitter and helps reset that balance. So that's really important too. Um, you want to be thinking about obviously having more of a lifestyle approach here at all times. So uh, what I recommend for everybody is to have a sleep routine that they do every single night, no matter what, as, as much as possible. Because if you can do this, it's like the, the way I always describe it, it's like Pavlov and the dog. Pavlov's dog experiment is, is a very simple one. You have a, you ring a bell, you bring the food out for the dog, the dog salivates. And then after a little while, you ring the bell and the dog salivates without any food there. And as a result of that, it's kind of a description of an automatic response. And so if you can tell your body that this is an automatic response, that I'm doing these things 15 or 30 minutes before I go to bed, oftentimes that would be a really, way, really great way to get people to fall asleep. Now, that's the falling asleep part. The staying asleep part is a little bit harder. And mm -hmm. that's because you have people wake up at three o'clock in the morning and they'll be wide awake and have a very difficult time going to bed. And, and there's sometimes people will take melatonin at that point. Some people won't. There's, I know there's controversy around melatonin as, as far as production, but the big thing I think is, is circadian rhythm reset. And also when you're doing your exercise. And so if you're seeing sunlight first, when you wake up in the morning and trying to see in the sunset and then avoiding bright lights in the evening, there's also controversy as whether if whether blue blockers really matter or not, but um, but I, I I still think that that certainly bright lights should be avoided in the evenings if if at all possible. So that's a good way to help reset your 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 melatonin as well as your cortisol rhythms. And I've also found that if people exercise too late in the evening, that can also screw up their their sleep mm -hmm. architecture and wake them up in the middle of the night. And so trying to work out earlier in the morning are some of the main things. And you know then there's lots of other sleep hacks as we know, but nothing's in a silo here, Joe, as you know. So you're thinking yeah, about yeah. How, how you can help people right now as you're doing all these things that hopefully will help them maintain so they don't need supplementation. They don't need you know, exogenous things. They can kind of do it all on their own. Yeah. So this, the circadian rhythm is you want to align, as you mentioned or alluded to, you want to align your sleep time with sunrise and sunset. So we, we, as we're recording this, this is the first weekend after uh, the daylight savings time termination in the U.S. So um, it gets darker a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've mentioned waking up at three. Actually, that's my, I frequently wake up at three. And I, and I guess when I get up, but I go to bed at eight. Right, so that's enough sleep then. Yeah. seven hours. And then yep. I wake up a little earlier today. I woke up at two, I think two. Yeah, it was two, but it was really three because of the time shift. Sure. So I did, I did some meditation. Now you had mentioned the breath work and I, I couldn't agree more, but I, I'm wondering if you've looked into the reason that breath work works. Ostensibly it's to increase your CO2 levels. And I don't know if you studied CO2, but that is, like, that is good because we should yeah. dialogue about that because, you know, I've, I've done a deep dive in with one of the uh, leading breath experts, probably the best guy out there in the world, Peter Litchfield. Uh, and he teaches this and has actually has a device that measures your CO2 levels because you, mm -hmm. you don't measure it. You're just guessing. And the, this, what he's a firm believer in is that most breathwork teachers are doing the wrong thing because it's not about breath, breathing mechanics. It's about kicking in automatically, 
autonomously and getting rid of your bad breathing habits that you can be doing these. You can be doing perfect buteco breathing. And he said a lot of practitioners were over breathing all the time and had very low CO2 levels. So I, so you have to be cautious with breathing because if you have, and these breathing habits, they're, they're established frequently at a very early age from some type of trauma and you have a trigger and boom, you're into it. You don't even know you're doing it. So it takes a skilled clinician to assess these and it's not widely known, but it sounds like you're aware of that. And I'm, so I'm wondering if you can share your experience with CO2 levels and some of the strategies you mentioned, because it would seem like to me that that CO, the benefit of doing that is to raise your CO2 level, which is so dramatic and improves your oxygenation in your body. And I'm what actually we should talk about this because we, you had mentioned, alluded to it earlier in your intro, that you do hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Right. You're one of the top experts out there on this. And I'm wondering, you know, in my mind, it's almost malpractice not to use CO2 in that, uh, that airflow to compensate for it. Well, uh, yeah, you're, uh, you, you, you make, some very interesting points here because I, I've obviously I'm an oxygen guy. I've been an oxygen yeah. guy for a decade doing yeah. hyperbaric oxygen therapy and understanding how oxygen works. And it wasn't until maybe two years ago when I met a couple of colleagues in the space as well that in the, let's call it the breath space and the mm -hmm. CO2 retention space where mm -hmm. I truly started to understand that if I wanted oxygen to work better, I needed to make sure that I understood, I needed yeah. to understand how CO2 was working because mm -hmm. if you're hyperventilating, for example, you don't unbind oxygen from your red blood cells and you can't get it to your peripheral tissue because of how you shift something called your oxygen dissociation curve. So well, and, because and you're changing the pH. You, you're changing you get, the pH. Exactly. Yeah, you get yeah. respiratory alkalosis. Exactly. So there's something called the oxygen dissociation curve. And this is a curve. Or the bore curve. Yeah. Curve. That that shifts depending on ah. multiple different things. Um the oxygen availability is one of them. CO2 is another one. Um, there's multiple other things, pH in the body, it'll shift. Mm -hmm. And, and so you have to, when I think about CO2 now, I absolutely think about it as, uh, not a waste product anymore. I used to think about it as, oh, we just make carbon dioxide and we breathe it out. But the challenge with that is that CO2 has lots of other major effects, especially in the brain. And mm -hmm. it causes lots of, it causes vasodilation, for example. And mm -hmm. if you have too much, excuse me, too little CO2, you're going to constrict blood vessels. And if you're constricting blood vessels, you're going to have a challenge with getting oxygen to the tissues that you need it. And so certainly I think a big part of, of breath work, the breath work that's working on CO2 tolerance mm -hmm. um, is really, really important because that's going to shift your oxygen dissociation curve. And then as a result of that, you're going to, you're going to have a better parasympathetic and sympathetic balance because you're going to be more tolerant to stress overall if you have more CO2 uh, tolerance overall. So I 100% agree that I think a part of what's going on with breath work and balancing out your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is CO2 tolerance. And then by extension, I think GABA is playing a role as we have more parasympathetic balance around as well. Yeah, I just recently uh, viewed a lecture that Ray Peake gave from 14, almost 14 years ago. And it only had 2,000 views, so virtually no one has seen this. And it was all about CO2. And he, he shared some examples on how it might be the single best longevity agent uh, of the naked mole rat. And anyone who studies longevity knows that they're a paradox because they're about the same size as a mouse. Mouse lives two to three years, and these naked mole rats live like 30 years. It's crazy. And the speculation from Pete's perspective is that they dig these holes and then they cover the holes up and they, they, they're, they're living in CO2 concentrations of like 5%. Hmm. And our, our concentration in the environment, I believe, is 0.4%. It used to be 0.3, but now we've got global warming. <laughs> I just know about it in parts per, yeah, I just know in millimeters of mercury. I don't know it. Yeah, in, yeah. In, yeah in, that's right. Because you're a hyperbaric guy. But, yeah. But so... So it's interesting that, you know, and the, some of the speculation why it works is it, it actually lowers the conversion of tryptophan to serotonin. Hmm. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the factors. Yeah. So, but I'm wondering if you've explored integrating CO2 to the oxygen. They actually, there's a, the, the divers have this, I think it's maybe 5% CO2 in their oxygen mixture. It has a name, carbonox or... Yeah, they have I, a, a name I, for it. I know. I know you're. you're yeah, you're I just don't about. recall the specific yeah. name, but it's, it's it's a standard mixture that you can purchase commercially if you're diving. Yeah, so, so, I, wonder... yeah. so I haven't explored CO2 directly, like as a gas. I have used, and I'm working with uh, with CO2 
tolerance uh, with breath, mm-hmm. with hyperbaric therapy. So working on there's another really cool uh, little reflex. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's called the splenic contracture or dive reflex. So what mm-hmm. happens is that if you hold your breath mm-hmm. for a period of time, it doesn't have to be too long, even just a uh, 30 seconds, even maybe a mm-hmm. minute. Your CO2 uh, will go up big time. Your, your CO2 goes up. And, and, and as a result of that, you have your spleen actually contracts. And mm-hmm. as a result of your spleen contracting, you get extra red blood cells in circulation because the body's mm-hmm. trying to get you more oxygen carrying capacity. So I've mm-hmm. using that clinically. So it's a reflex. It's a reflex. Then, yeah, it's because- a reflex. It's something that we were, you know, when we were mammals in the ocean that we would have. And, I didn't and- know that was a mechanism that the spleen contracts. Yes, yeah, so the spleen because actually contracts. It's it's well increased CO two is a is a vasodilator. So you wouldn't think you wouldn't think of a constriction anywhere, but it's just it's a, yeah. it's a reflex. So. It's a reflex that happens. It's it comes from us being mammals in the ocean and and needing more oxygen carrying capacity. So trying to get every red blood cell, we have a we have a, a reservoir of red blood cells in our spleen, and that reservoir um, is emptied or a significant amount of it is if we if we hold our breath because the body's thinking, oh shit, we don't have any oxygen around when we have to get more red blood cells out to do the best we can to carry more. So, and that's something that I've leveraged in, in a hyperbaric chamber, for example. So if you have somebody do a breath hold before they go in the chamber, then they go in, they're going to have more oxygen carrying capacity when they do go in. But the big thing that I always think about, Joe, now after the last several years of talking to breath experts and doing this myself as well is making sure people are not hyperventilating at all, right? Making sure that they're taking slow, deep breaths and not <laughs> over, over breathing because if they are, they're not mm-hmm. going to be able to unbind the oxygen that we're- oh, You're hundred percent correct, yeah. but the, it's a huge, huge problem because Litchfield is not only an expert in respiratory physiology, has a degree in it, but he's also an expert in behavioral training, behavior analysis. Right. And that's the whole thing. Most all of this is unconscious. They think they're breathing slow, but a vast, a large segment of the, I can say it's the majority, but in many, many cases, they're breathing too deep. It's not shallow. And as a result, they, they're hypocapnic. Their CO2 levels are in the dirt. Mm. Even yeah. though they think they're doing it the right way, they go into this supposed relaxation response and their CO2 levels drop to like 20, 25, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. You can do some things. I, I don't, I haven't worked with any CO2 monitors directly, but I know they do exist, but I know that you can look at. I've, look got, at how- I've got one. I'm, I play with it all the time. Oh, cool. It's, yeah. It's fascinating because you know, what I'm particularly intrigued with is I had a, a bad breathing habit when I was working out and exercising. And when you look at the monitor, you can actually train yourself to, to slow the breath down. You can see your CO2 levels. And I would, I was going in like in the low twenties and now I'm in above 40 mm, yeah. when I work out, but it's, it's a massive conscious shift in how you're training yeah. because you think you're breathing heavier and more quickly and you're getting more oxygen, but it's the exact opposite. You lower your oxygen. Yeah. Nasal breathing is really important too. I think that's the other piece yeah, that, yeah. that people forget is that nasal breathing is also really important when you're looking to Ideally, yeah, but it's not necessary. You can breathe normally with your mouth. It's not ideal because you're losing the filtering and there's other reflexes and you dry your mouth and you're going to increase your risk of cavities, but you can still have normal CO2 levels with mouth breathing. Yeah, I but I would I'd never, never advise it for bright nighttime sleeping. That's for right. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I just, I know that the, from a CO2 tolerance perspective, it's easier to, for nasal breathing in general is what I've been told uh, overall. If you're, especially if you're in exercise, um, you're able to increase your tolerance higher if you're nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. But yeah, anyway. it, it, it may not be, the, it, it depends on the individual because sure. the only way to do it is to measure it. You got to, you got to use these capnometers and the capnometers will tell you without very precisely. It's just like, you yeah. don't know what blood pressure is. You don't know what your vitamin D level is as you measure it. Yes. You got to measure. I'm a big fan of, I mean, this is just in general. I, I agree with you hundred percent, Joe, that you really need to be measuring things. And that's the big things that I typically measure is on the metabolomic side. So I do a lot of testing with my, with my own personal clients of looking at metabolomics and looking at vitamins, minerals, and nutrients and hormones and neurotransmitters. And if you don't measure, you really don't know is what it comes down to. And then you yeah. have all these objective measures of thinking, looking at CO2, for example, oxidative stress markers back to the the other side, but I'm always thinking about these things on the hyperbaric side. I'm always thinking about oxidative stress levels, antioxidant reserve, um, energy capacity, vasodilatory response. You know, these are things CO2 that- is one of the best ways to reduce ages, advanced glycation end products. And you know how it does it? Does it with, by binding to the protein. There's a, lys- there's, there's a carbonyl amino residue that has lysine as the amino acid and it binds to that. And it does it. It's not covalent. It's an ionic bond, hmm. but it just it's like a bulletproof shield and protecting that protein from being damaged. 
which is why you want to have your CO2 levels really, really high, as high as you can tolerate. Right. You know, in the forties, for sure. Right. Definitely in the forties. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful if you have COPD, if you have. Oh yeah. That's a whole different deal. Right. You have obesity, hyperventilation. We're assuming normal lung pathology. Assuming normal I mean, lung pathology. Lack, lack of lung pathology. Rather. Yeah. Because I have to, I have, always have to be careful who's going into a hyperbaric chamber. If they have untreated severe sleep apnea, they're morbidly obese, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. COPD and they don't have a, a good ability to regulate their, their balance between CO2 and oxygen because the people don't realize that what makes us breathe is not oxygen, but our CO2 levels. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't balance out your CO2 and oxygen levels, you can get into trouble in a, in a hyperbaric chamber. But that's, that's another, another indicator, Joe, as what you're saying, that why CO2 is so important. We don't breathe because of lack of oxygen. We breathe because of elevated CO2. Yeah. It's, it's a stimulus. And, you know, for, in it's, I didn't realize this, but in most communities, the most common reason that people jump into an ambulance is because of CO2 dysfunction. The majority of people, actually, in most communities, because they have a panic disorder and they think they're dying. Right. They, they really, because, you know, people aren't stupid. They know they jump in an ambulance. It's a big ass bill. I mean, it could even result in bankruptcy jumping in an ambulance. Right. So this, they're not going to be doing that frivolously, 100%. They, they only do it if they think their life is in jeopardy. And I mean, they, they feel that. I mean, it's just it's just a horrible feeling when you when you feel you can't get enough oxygen. And they get they get into this, they get trapped, and they get it just builds on itself, and they can't get out of it. And yeah. it's not, it's, yeah. it is a lack of oxygen, but, but it's because their CO two is so low, right? Because the, the, the curve changes in the wrong direction. It you binds tighter. The pH makes it harder to get the oxygen out of the red cell. Exactly. So if you can't unbind your red blood cells with the oxygen, so you're not going to, you're going to feel terrible. And it's interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. I haven't done it, but have you ever tried holotropic breathing where you do hyperventilation for 30 minutes at a time and have a psychedelic experience? I mean, that, that I'm wondering what yeah. the mechanism is there. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of it. I mean, you can definitely do it. It's certainly an alternative to some psychotropics. Right. Uh, I just think there's other ways. I, I much prefer meditation to do yeah. that. Yeah, it just it's a lot I mean, more from, from a day to day operations perspective. Yeah. And certainly, I think meditation I'm, is higher. I've been playing with my meditation. I did an hour and a half meditation this morning, and uh, yeah, I'm a big I fan of meditation too. Yeah, I, I'm a uh, and I had a capnometer on, and my my CO two levels were rise. I think this is the reason why one of the benefits of major benefits of meditation is your CO two levels rise. Do you think it I, has? I was running at forty five the almost yeah. the whole time. Yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with increasing theta and delta, and maybe even gamma, uh, as far as in the brain and brainwaves. Because yeah, because um, I, I use a meditation app that, that's exactly what it does. It, it's brainwave entrainment and, and yeah. drives into those rhythms. So. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I mean, so I teach all of my clients to meditate. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't make it too complex for many people, but there's lots of different ways to meditate. But this is a great way for people to reset on a regular basis to again go back oh. to the balance between your parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, systems, right? And and having a different perspective on all the thoughts and uh, the things that you think you need to do, but all of them being an illusion and just watching them kind of arise and pass away. And and there's obviously lots, lots of nice ways of doing this and lots of different apps and lots of different programs. But in essence, if you can just watch your mind and observe it for a little while and see what's happening and, and be amazed at what comes up and then just let it pass because there's a great uh, Tibetan uh, nursery rhyme that I like. It's like, you know, we are the sky and the clouds are just passing like children and you just watch them go and they just keep going and keep keep going. They're always going to come and they're always going to go. Right. So it's something that I tell my kids every night before they go to bed too, is a nice way of reminding people. But I think that you're right. I, I think when people have these meditative experiences, when they have these, oh. and they have like these, uh, these, uh, these peak experiences on meditation, uh, they're, they're very, they're very well, maybe a CO2 piece of this. There are, I'm convinced there is, there's like yeah. no doubt in my mind. There's, there's physical, yeah, you, deep, can, profound response in combination with the brainwave rhythms. Yeah. Because you can change, you, I mean, like, you can change your internal temperature, which is super interesting. If you're like a, a really amazing meditator. And I wonder if that has something to do with CO2. Probably. It's super interesting. Like play with that, but yeah, you have your yeah. monks that can sit outside in zero degree weather for hours or days uh, and keep their and maintain their their internal temperature. Uh, just you might, with, want, you might want to play with picking up a capnometer and playing with this. Yeah, I know. I'd like to. It's actually it's been on my list of things. Um, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll this, connect you with a, one yeah. of the best companies out there. Cool. They're not yeah. terribly pricey. I mean, there is medical equipment going. Yeah, but it's looking at the uh, uh, the the uh, hypoxic training as well. So mm -hmm. I've been looking at more of how to integrate that with. On the hyperbaric side, a little bit uh, understanding the um, the oh, shift. Oh, that's that are right. 
Yeah, I was actually was. Thank you for reminding me because I did want to discuss it with. I was going to do it offline, but as long as you mentioned it, we can discuss it here. What you're referring to is IHT or in-minute hypoxic training. I I put the price. They're pricey. They're tens of thousands of dollars, and I do it. But I'm actually preferring meditation more. I'm, I'm shifting because it's hard to use the capnometer in in that device because you have this face mask on that right. gives you the oxygen at varying concentrations, like you're, you're 10, 12,000 feet, maybe even 15,000 feet. And cycles between that concentration, which is usually uh, PO2 of 14% or so, partial less, pressure. Less than that. Yeah, less. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't want to go a lot less than that. I would no, not I know, go. I know. I'm just saying, you I can, live in Colorado. It goes, down, it goes down to nine, you know, yes. but yeah. it's dangerous down there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then you go up to 34%, you know, you alternate between the two, and it has some profound impacts. So, yeah, I've been playing with it for a, bit, a little bit over a year. And, yeah. Uh, I think there's something to it. I think that the the going low oxygen is is very interesting and for short periods of time if you're relatively mm -hmm. healthy. I think if you're unhealthy, I think it could be a real challenge because it puts on significant stress in the system. Um, there, the, what you're looking to do here with intermittent hypoxic training is kind of throw on that stress a little bit and then go to hyperoxia or to increase the amount of oxygen and then kind of flood the system as the, as the body is shifting that dissociation curve that we were talking about before. So you're shifting it one way, like in the, oh shit way, because you have 9% oxygen and then the, the red blood. Well, cells, hopefully not nine. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. So in Colorado, what I think we're at 5,000 feet, it's about 16% oxygen. So yeah, just, yeah, to give, just again, give a barometer for people. So, but yeah. yeah. And then you shift it back to hyperoxia and then your body gets, excited about all that oxygen being in there and you can utilize it better as a result of flipping it back and forth. And so we've been looking at how you can use that inside of a, in, in a hyperbaric world a little bit and, and help with leveraging, but you have to be careful here because it is cer certainly something that can be very stressful on the system. If you're not doing this, uh, if you're not used to doing the intermittent hypoxia there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in a hyperbaric chamber, Joe, as you know, you can use something called an air break, which mm -hmm. is when you're breathing oxygen at a certain pressure and then you stop breathing that amount of oxygen, just breathe the amount of oxygen in the, in the chamber itself. So that might be, if you're at sea level, that's 21% oxygen at sea level. And then you're increasing it maybe to 90% with a mask or something like that. And when you go to 90% down to 20% or 21%, your body sees as, as a relative hypoxia. This is something called the hyperoxic hypoxic paradox. So you can think about even just leveraging a hyperbaric chamber without even going fully hypoxic. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways to play with this, but I think the, the main idea really is how are you going to enhance um, the ability of the body to increase a mitochondrial function and also uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. That's one of the big yeah. things. And and then that, what you're looking at there is probably recycling a lot of the, the mitochondria that aren't working very well. And and that's what you're, what you're looking to do with one of the, one of the major things here. The stem cell release is another. Um, angiogenesis or new blood vessels is another thing. Mm -hmm. These are all kind of things that are involved, I think, when you're looking at that hypoxic, hyperoxic stimulus. Yeah, the uh, it's a stressor for sure. And just in many ways, I think the best stressor analogy you have is exercise. Right. And just like exercise, you really do not want to do aggressive exercise every day. That is a prescription for disaster. You know, do typically hard workouts two or three times a week is all you need. Anything more is going to be counterproductive. So it's kind of like the same with this. You don't want to do it that frequently. But I'm wondering yeah, if, if you've looked at the hormonal responses to hyperbaric versus IHT intermittent hypoxic training, are they pretty similar like with F1-alpha and other responses? And, and maybe you can compare the two because it's it's really, you know, this IHT isn't popular at all in the United States. There's very few centers that have it. It's mostly was popularized in Germany and Russia, and it's just now coming to the U.S. So it's hard to find a lot of details on it. And I've actually been going to interview a, a Russian expert in the next few weeks to get more details, but it's, it's sort of an enigma to me right now. I wonder if you studied it more deeply. I mean, I've, I've studied it. I mean, the challenge is, is there's no comparisons in the sense of, I can't say that IHT is going to do X and hyperbaric therapy is going to do the same or, or more or less. I mean, my, my general sense of this Joe is that intermittent hypoxic training in a hyperbaric chamber, when you're going from high amounts of oxygen to regular mm -hmm. amounts of oxygen, that is safer for most people, especially mm -hmm. when they're starting because it's not going to be as much stress on the system in general. So, um, but if you're relatively healthy and you're looking to make bigger gains faster, I think that intermittent hypoxic training, as you're describing with one of these machines is probably going to get you there faster. 
And that, so there's, but there's, there's a trade-off there. And, and so in, in many people that I'm first doing this work on, I'm, I'm usually thinking about if I'm going to do intermittent hypoxic training, it's to be very mild. Um, mm -hmm. and what I've also realized is that you probably, this is from uh, talking to many people in this world of intermittent hypoxic training. And then a lot of these guys are also in the breath work space. Mm -hmm. as well. my, friend, mm -hmm. my friend, Brian McKenzie, for example, um, mm -hmm. who's a really great, amazing guy. Um, is that you don't need as much of a hypoxic stimulus really to get the effect that you think you need. And mm -hmm. this is still very early in, in understanding, but when you actually get HIF release is probably not as significant. You don't have to go to 9% oxygen to do that is what it comes down mm -hmm. to. So I think that you probably can get away with doing less intermittent hypoxic training and still get significant benefit. And if you're not as ready to go to the deeper pressure, the deeper or the lower levels of oxygen and make the bigger gains faster. So I think a lot of this is just, is, is person dependent. Um, so, and I think it kind of what, it really depends on what the goals are, right? If you're a, an elite athlete, or if you're somebody that's just trying to have uh, like longevity and, and health span, health span first, longevity second, of course, but health span first, then I think that's going to be a different permutation yeah. where I would be thinking differently as opposed to somebody that came in and said they wanted to win an Ironman in two years or something yeah. like that. I want to put a warning in here because I realize some people might be confused what we're talking about when you say intermittent hypoxia training because there's another form of that out there ostensibly, which is like LIBO2 would be an example of that. And I've had one on those, but this is a totally different animal. That's a cheap substitute. And essentially this giant bag that literally might be four or five giant trash right. bags full of oxygen that you've hold up and in, in, in a plastic bag, which is not a good idea, you know, because the phthalates and things that you're breathing in in like 15 minutes. So, and then the, the, this device is much more sophisticated. It's, first of all, it's the oxygen concentrator is medical grade. It's, right. it's very, yeah. very pure oxygen. The one yeah. in these like liable twos is not, it, it is not hospital grade at all. And there's no sensory feedback. So that you have a, a $500 PO2 meter. I mean, this is another medical grade uh, pulse oximeter that's on your finger so that you set the thresholds. And if your PO2 drops below 80% or 84%, whatever you feel is the safeguard, the machine automatically kicks on. So you cannot damage yourself. It's a, it's a safeguard. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, in people with that, uh, train me on it in some ways it's like wim hof breathing but with all the safeguards you know because you're, you're it's absolutely controlled there's no way you can get hurt because if if you're doing it properly you, you can bypass the safeties and you're gonna kill yourself but you know that's not a wise strategy okay. but so it's a lot the point i wanted to make is it's a lot different than what's generally perceived as intermittent hypoxic training this is with a lot more guidance and a lot more, um, a lot more surveillance as you're doing it. Absolutely. And I know, I know machines you're talking about, I know how expensive they are as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it's definitely another realm and yeah, I agree. We should, we shouldn't be breathing out of plastic bags as much as we can. Yeah, well, I had one of those and I, I stopped that many years ago. It was just, and cause you could exhaust, especially if you're going fast, you can exhaust it. And then probably when you're using it, you've got, you probably have a, a breathing, a bad breathing habit, and you're learning your CO2 level. So you, you think you're breathing all this great oxygen, but you're you consume, you're consuming it so rapidly that you're you're developing low CO2s, and it's absolutely counterproductive. So yeah. You have to be very careful. You're playing with fire, and you don't even know it. That's the danger. Yeah, I think as we were discussing earlier, I think the main ways that most people can do this is learn how to learn the ways of CO2 tolerance. And there's very there's lots of different ways of doing that. I'm sure, Joe, you have lots of recommendations there. I have a some. capnometer. <laughs> That's the only way to know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for sure. otherwise you're fooling yourself. You just yeah. it's so so many people professionals who teach this. You know, I can't tell you the number of people who thought they were doing the right thing, trained breath professionals, and they had low CO2 levels. Yeah, I'd love to, I didn't definitely need to check it out because I think yeah. what I look try to do and, and look, all my patients and clients that I work with, whether I'm working on their GABA system or a hyperbaric mm -hmm. therapy or, and because for me, my, my whole approach is, is a, a very foundational integrative one. I'm right. always looking for ways. Oh, that's a good fun. point. Yeah. You know, you were talking about met metabolomics and yeah. trying to find tests. So the, so I, the, the latest data show that likely 95% of the population is metabolically inflexible. Right. AKA insulin resistance. So I'm wondering okay. if you regularly measure fasting insulin levels, that seems to be the best 
biomarker for insulin resistance. It's definitely one of the ones that I use when I'm looking at hormone optimization for my clients. I do use fasting insulin and I, I do the HOMA 2 IR measurements as well. Which is what is that now? The HOMA 2 IR? What is yeah, it? It's just a way to calculate insulin resistance. It's another, it's just a, it's a calculation that you can use looking what, at. What, um, looking what are the at, other variables? Uh, fasting glucose and, 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 ins, and insulin level, basically. Oh, okay. So you take those two and you get yeah, another you number. Get, it's just a calculation. So you can so do fasting that. insulin by itself. And it's fasting insulin is cheap. I mean, it's not an expensive test. You just have to fast. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. What, what are the ranges you've seen in your in, in your practice? I mean, you see all I see you see things all over the place, and I've had even like elite athletes with low insulin levels that are crazy that they, that actually they become elite athletes just to maintain their insulin uh, their insulin response because they don't have enough insulin around, which is pretty unusual but pretty interesting. But I've seen everything from you know very very low insulin to very very high. What's the lowest you've seen? I've seen I think I've seen less than was it less than two? I think it was two somewhere around there. So I think like, it's usually, I think the scale goes from like zero to 13, yeah, yeah. Yeah, three to 13 is normal or something like that. I think, um, if we're in it for, I have to look at the exact you know, scale. It, interestingly, it's thought that carbohydrate restriction will lower your insulin levels, right? I mean, that's conventionally believed by most physicians, I think. So I got my carbohydrate levels up to 500 grams. And I don't recommend that for everyone because you need a fair amount. You have to be, have to have muscle mass and you have to be doing a lot of movement. Otherwise, that's going to be way too much for a lot of people. Most people need about at least half of that, though. And if you're getting less, it's a problem. But my, you know what? Guess my insulin level. I just did it last week. What was Best. it? 1.4. That's low. <laughs> no <laughs> insulin resistance. Well, that's the thing. You don't have any insulin. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, with that much carbohydrate floating around, it must be everything else that you're doing. But I mean, in general, we have people that are are, are much higher on the insulin resistance scale. And you're right. I think 95% of the population has metabolic dysfunction, which means they have mitochondrial dysfunction. And if your mitochondria aren't working, you can't think, you can't exercise, you, you can't do much of anything very well for a very long time. And this is why we have such a like it's just an epidemic of people with brain fog, and you know, mm -hmm. especially in the in the world that we are in now, because if if you don't have mitochondria that are working, you're going to see it very easily and very quickly in your brain, especially. Um, that's where you have your most outside of your muscle tissue and your heart and your liver. So. Um, I think it's great that you're looking at that. It's definitely one of the markers I look like, look at all the time. Yeah. Some well, yeah. I think it's imperative if, if you want, because it's it's an epidemic and it, it really is at the core of one of the primary reasons. It's really a marker. It's not the maybe not the cause, but it's certainly a marker. Yeah, because be? yeah, because I used to believe it was the cause, but I was confused. I used to believe high glucose was the cause, and no, no, it's insulin. No, it's not insulin. It's the reasons that the insulin is resistant to begin with, which is has to go to the mitochondria, and the right. mitochondria are messed up because you you're in yeah. the wrong fuels. Yeah, you mentioned muscle mass too, which is a big one, right? If you don't have muscle yeah. mass, you don't have any reserves for your glucose that you're taking in from your carbohydrate. So you need to have muscle mass to be able to to add yeah. a reservoir for these things. If you're taking as many yeah. carbs as you did um, for a period of time, you don't have any muscle mass, you're going to get in trouble. Overall. Oh, big time. Because mm -hmm. you, you, you'll have too much glucose that you can't, you can't store. You can't just grow the muscles. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. A, muscle is a sink. It's got the glucose receptors on the, in the cell membrane. Right. And, and that's, and that, in. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why it's really big for people, especially as they get older, to make sure they're maintaining their muscle mass and their protein intake. And that's a big problem with intermittent fasting in general is that people don't get enough protein, let alone carbohydrate restriction. And I know that there's controversy on that side and how you've changed. But in, this, in essence, I think the bigger issue is protein for most people. If they're not getting enough, they're going to get sarcopenic as they get older, which means that they're yeah, definitely. But I, I think they're both a, both a big issue. I think that potentially the carb restriction may be even more so because you're going to have chronically elevated stress hormones, uh, glucagon, uh, growth hormone, uh, cortisol, epinephrine, or, or dope, uh, not dopamine, uh, adrenaline. It's also called Trump. Yeah. So, and they yeah. get what's called, I mean, there's some clinicians who call adrenaline dominance. And interestingly, you know what some of these clinicians use to treat adrenaline dominance? Aside from carb restriction, I mean, carb, getting healthy carbs on board. Sure. They use progesterone. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually seems, heard that. Seems, yeah. seems to work really good as an anti-stress hormone. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It can do that for sure. I mean, it also really works well for BPH if you put it uh, as a suppository is what I've heard as well. So. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interestingly enough, but then you can't get erection. So there's that problem. But, you know, at least you don't have a big prostate. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, things here, but I, I think. Uh, you know, it goes back to, you know, the. the a lot of people believe that nitric oxide is is so important and useful, but actually, it's 
I don't know what your view is, but you know, a lot of people are looking at it as a toxin. And yeah, you need some for sure, but the primary vasodilator in the body is not nitric oxide. It's, it's CO2, it's carbon dioxide. Yeah, there's controversy there. I, I'm not sure where I, I find myself at this point, Joe. I have, I've heard your, your take on this before. Uh, I know uh, I've heard, obviously, the other take of, uh, as well in, in various ways. So well, you need some NO. You, know, you do, definitely do. There's no yeah. question. It's I, an I think, important modulator. It's an important uh, signaling molecule. Yes, yes. And, I do, and hyperbaric therapy depletes it, interestingly enough. So mm. um, that's why you yeah, have now. That's why I have mild vasoconstriction when you're in the chamber. So what I try to do actually is to mitigate that vasoconstriction um, sometimes before people go in, because I do consider that as maybe uh, from a therapeutic efficacy perspective. But but in general, I I, I find this I find all these arguments really interesting. I find the arguments with Ray's Ray's work. Well, I find now you discussion. Yeah, oh yeah, I love it. I, I think it's so great yeah. because you should always be questioning what you believe. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, don't believe what you think, and everything you think is an illusion anyway. Is what I always tell my patients. Yeah, so. that's true. That's, that's true for life. You know, I mean, that's one of my guiding principles. Is yeah, that, and that's that's why you've. That's, it's I, that's all why an I, illusion. Yeah, that's why we, I, I think some people respect your work, Joe, is because you're always willing to question what you believe and change. And I think that's the way I grew up as well. You know, as the son of a chiropractor, as I mentioned, it was, mm-hmm. there was never any gospel. It was like, whatever is the information here, this is what we go with and this is how we go. And so right now for me, that's the way I practice and I've created a, a whole sort of foundational work that I do with clients and, and the, the, the work that I think about from a, the GABA system and parasympathetic and sympathetic and CO2 and oxygen. This is, this, these are all always evolving things. Yeah. And like, if you asked me three years ago about CO2, I'd be like, oh, it's a waste product. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 for sure. No, 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 no. So, so this How is we the, know better. Yes. And that's the thing, right? And so- No, you would have said it's the primary contributor to global warming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, that must be what you believe now, or, or you believed yeah. five years ago or, or 10 years yeah, ago, yeah. whatever. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So if people are intrigued with your view on how to get healthy and take and do it in your, your, your few uh, approaches, how would they find you? Yeah. So I think probably the easiest way is my website is, is drscottsher.com, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-S-H-E-R-R.com. Um, I have various other locations. There's a nonprofit that I was mentioning earlier that I'm a part of called Health Optimization Medicine and Practice or homehope.org. That's uh, an educational platform for doctors and practitioners if they're interested in learning a new framework uh, that's not functional medicine, that's not uh, that's really focused on optimizing cellular health and gut health and and looking at neurotransmitters and GABA and things like that. And I have other couple of other companies that make products in this space um, that people are interested in. They can find me on Instagram at Dr. Scott Sure, and they can find all those companies and links to those there too. Well, great. Well, thanks for your work. You keep up the the uh, continuing challenging the mainstream. Let's do it.